Good morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 28, 16 through the end of the chapter. First Kings chapter 3, and starting at verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him, and one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened, the third day after I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house, except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had borne. And the other woman said, No. But the living son is my son, and the dead, son, dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for the safety that you've given to each of us to be here. Lord, we're uh, we're so thankful for your word and for the the truth that it gives to us. Lord, help. I ask that uh, you would use the the message that I've studied that it would be useful to us, Lord. That it would be uh, a lesson in practical wisdom and Lord, teach us more about your judgment, more about the ultimate judgment that you will have on each of our lives. Lord, help us to understand you better. Help us to draw close through this text and that we would not draw anything from it that is not there. Lord, I ask for forgiveness upon my sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I do have to admit 
that it was very difficult for me to not allegorize this narrative. And to allegorize means to put a, take a story and to put meaning to things that really doesn't necessarily mean it's there. I don't want to, uh, don't want to add things to scripture. And so it was very difficult for me not to do that. There was a preacher that I started listening to that I, I had to stop because I knew it was wrong. I knew what, what he was doing. And we can't pick this apart and see ourselves as having the same attributes as one or the other of the women that are standing before Solomon. But he does, does represent uh, Jesus in judgment. He's a type of Jesus still, but he also demonstrates a practical use of godly wisdom. He does not allow the emotion of the conflict to sway his decision, but at the same time, he understands it and knows that the compassion of the real mother will reveal itself. Through Scripture, we know the condition of mankind. We understand how that condition affects the way that people will make decisions. And I think that these women do display love versus envy, but again, we can't simply make one of them a sinner and the other a saint. The verdict doesn't include a condemnation for the woman that is grieving for her child, regardless of how badly she reacted, because vengeance is not ours. We can't determine her condemnation when it's not there in Scripture. The wisdom of God is given to His people to discern truth, and it's used by God to deliver ultimate justice to all people. And I think that that's what this text is meant to demonstrate. The wisdom of God is given to His people to discern truth, and used by God to deliver ultimate justice to all people. And first, what we want to look at is the case presentation. We're just splitting the text in two, verses 16 through 22. Let's read that again. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him, and one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened The third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Now there's also a temptation to jump straight to the end of this test, text and asked, ask, excuse me, I can't speak. There's a temptation to jump straight to the end of this text and ask why this is seen as such a great accomplishment for Solomon when it seems so simple. But if we start from the beginning and lay out the case, we'll find that it is not straightforward. First, 
Notice that these women are part of a marginalized group of people for their time. Being women, it's likely that they already struggled to get an audience with any judge, let alone the king of Israel. They were also harlots that probably ran their business out of the house mentioned. Prostitution is still frowned upon and stigmatized, even with the degradation of sex and relationships in our culture, and so they would have been considered the bottom of society. So that being said, there must have been a process to get where they were. They didn't simply walk into the presence of the king and disturb everything else he was doing. There was an appointment and a time for this to be brought to Solomon after they had appealed to lower-ranking judges that were unable to sort out this case. After all those judges failed to determine justice, they were given the opportunity to go to the king's court. Second, there are a couple of assumptions that we have to make about the details of the story before actually seeing the judgment made. The women living in the same uh, living in the same house and the, the timeline of both women giving birth have to be taken at face value simply because woman number two doesn't disagree with woman number one. The biggest takeaway is that there are no witnesses. Jewish law requires two or three witnesses and they have none. It is a case of he, sh- he said, she said, or I guess she said, she said. And that's what makes this case so tricky. There's no obvious answer when there is nobody to verify whether woman number one or woman number two is correct. And even the woman who is lying that we find out is going to be adamant about her case. If you're in this deep and standing before the king presenting your case you're not likely to back out now both of them are obviously in need as well their business is most likely put on hold considering that they both just gave birth their cultural dispositions would find some relief in having a male child that would grow to take care of them when they were no longer able to sell themselves These financial considerations put more pressure behind the fact that one of these mothers is grieving for her son and the other is trying to protect hers from being kidnapped. I think these are easy easy facts to skip over. It's easy to read over and miss the details when we're so far separated from the time and place that this occurred, but these women were still people. They had needs and desires and love and heartbreak. Regardless of how the death of one of these boys occurred, it didn't, doesn't change the fact that he's dead and left behind a grieving mother. The joy of her motherhood and a chance for some security was cut short by a mistake. And taking all of these things in mind helps put together a picture of these women fighting desperately for the living child and suddenly the case is not so clear with all the anger and the fear and the sadness that's driving them. But as Solomon requested from God in the previous verses to this, in the first half of this chapter, he had asked for a 
heart for listening and one in tune with God to discern between good and evil to judge God's people. And that's what he uses in the next verses. Verse 23. Let's read the end of the chapter again. Verse 23, And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other one says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, let, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Now it was important for Solomon's plan of discernment to take into account the mindsets and emotions and intentions of these women, but at the same time maintain his composure. He may have had suspicions, but there was no clear picture of the correct answer. It's the word of woman number one against the word of woman number two. And that is what he lays out. It seems easy, simple, and almost juvenile as he is. He's only roughly 20 years old at this point. But he is determined correctly that there are very few facts he can rely on to make a sound judgment in this case. But he has stripped away the dialogue and the emotional attachments to the baseline. There are two women and two children, one dead and one alive, both women claiming the live child, and that's just about all he has available to make his decision. The even less obvious choice that he makes is to call for a sword and make this wild suggestion of giving each mother half of a child. Again, it's easy to see on paper what he's doing after it's all said and done, but imagine being there and watching this play, all play out. I'm a horrible strategist. I take things at face value, so I wouldn't have seen that he's trying to elicit a reaction. He looks into this dramatic scene and knows that he can pull more facts out of these women by placing the living child in danger. The mother of the living child will react in some way for certain. And the mother whose child is dead will not have the same drive to save this child's life. And that is exactly what happened. The mother of the living child reacted on instinct and put a stop to her child's execution. She yearned with compassion. I can read this now being a father and feel my stomach clench and know a similar feeling that she had to save her baby boy's life. She was so desperate to keep her son's life that she was willing to forfeit him to woman number two and live out her own life alone. 
She demonstrated exactly what Solomon wanted to see, a sacrificial love, and verified that she was this boy's mother. Woman number two, on the other hand, is already broken by her own son's death. Whether it's envy or trying to save herself from being seen as a bad mother or suck up to the king, she just agrees that it's best for this child to die as well. There's something sinister about this because there was already an offer for her to take the living child for herself. Why does she agree with the king that it's best to cut the child in half? And again, we can't say for sure because we're so far separated by time and, sp- and place. Place, <laughs> excuse me. And I would simply hope that her grief was blinding her decision-making ability. But regardless, the king's decision is clear. Woman number one has brought the case initially, fighting to regain custody over her own child and reacted to give him away rather than see him killed. And she won out. I can almost feel the relief as the child was returned to his mother's arms. And then the final sentence of this chapter, it draws us back into the context of the first half of the chapter that we didn't read. But again, that's where Solomon received his wisdom from God. He asked for wisdom to be able to judge, to be able to judge the great nation of Israel that represents God on earth. Or is meant to be, meant to at least. He had received wisdom from God, and now it is evident to everyone. And it was all well and good for King Solomon and the nation of Israel at that point in time, but what are we supposed to take away from this piece of historical narrative? I think it is important to keep in mind that the first half of the chapter. All uh, like you have to keep that in mind all the way through as we as we read the second half. The Creator God Yahweh had blessed Solomon with, as it says, an understanding heart to judge God's people and discern between good and evil. This is the prayer that we should have. Not necessar- not that we necessarily have a place to judge or determine justice, but that our, but we should pray for our nation's justice system, that it would actually be used to deliver real justice. We should desire to see our nation's leaders in all levels of authority administer justice and make policies based on biblical principles. You can pray for church leaders and preachers and teachers everywhere. And again, not that there is necessarily administration of justice in the sense that Solomon did, but there's a responsibility to enlighten and teach the principles of God's word so that the members of each congregation can be helped to to discern between good and evil. This discernment between good and evil has always been important, and it always will be, but it seems especially important in this current season of our culture where people are confused about who they are, what they are, and reality is blurred through the lens of whatever 
anyone feels like at any given moment. So even Solomon, as gifted and wise as he was, he was drawn away from God after, after this, and his heart was given over to his own desires and to idols. Solomon's own Proverb 9.10 reminds us that the starting point of wisdom, sound decision-making, begins with fearing the Lord. If you intend to please God with your actions, then follow through with diligence to know his word. Diligence in knowing his word should be followed up with response in your actions. If we never respond to the message of Scripture with a change in our behavior and a growth in knowledge, then we aren't growing as Christians. We can all have the good intentions and scriptural knowledge. We have all of it in the world, but if we never apply it and only see it as a lesson for someone else, then we're stunted in our growth and none of it matters. Again, another writing of, of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. He says, And further, my son, be admonished by, uh, by these, of making many books there is no end, and of much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is man's all. For God will, will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, our response to Scripture matters more than our volume of knowledge. It never does any good if there is no response to it, and God will bring every work into judgment. Between the, the two women and Solomon that Solomon judged, he rewarded the one woman that responded in compassion. She took action. She did something tangible. She spoke up in order to save her son. In this text, Solomon is a type of Christ. Solomon's wisdom was a shadow of God's own wisdom. And if his wisdom in judgment could cause that kind of reaction, what kind of reaction should come from a healthy fear of God? His judgment is even more powerful than what Solomon demonstrated. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us of God's judgment. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We must be diligent in obedience to God's word because we have we will be found out for better or for worse. Each of our lives is marked by mistakes, not unlike the mother of the dead child in our text, but do we have sacrificial love like the mother of the living child? Does your life demonstrate the love and grace that Jesus demonstrated toward you? That is what should mark our Christian life.